0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Word of the Cross and the Wisdom of the World. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March eleventh, two 2012, the third Sunday in Lent. When John McCarthy of Stanford University died in October 2011, Computer scientists around the world remembered him for his many pioneering contributions. Virtually every obituary recalled how McCarthy was the person who coined the term artificial intelligence way back in 1956. Since a friend of mine at church specializes in artificial intelligence, I asked him if he knew McCarthy or if he had any fun stories about him. I still remember <coughs> what John Mark said about McCarthy. After remembering him fondly, he said, McCarthy did what many scientists in artificial intelligence do. <coughs> when they think about how a computer might be more human, they almost always construe that as making a computer... Make it, construe that as making a computer smarter. It's like they reduce humanity to rational intelligence and forget about the many other characteristics that make us human. Most of the world's problems are not due to ignorance. We have plenty of smart people I was reminded of this simple but powerful insight while reading the little book, Why Niebuhr Now?, by John Patrick Diggins. Reinhold Niebuhr was arguably the most important American theologian of his generation. He lived through the First World War, the Depression, the Second World War, the Holocaust, the Spanish Civil War, the Korean War, Vietnam, the landing on the moon, and then the Cold War, Niebuhr insisted that humanity's problems are not ignorance or intelligence, but rather the corruption of human nature. We're thus confronted with what he called the limits of knowledge and the necessity of faith. Niebuhr questioned political, moral, and especially intellectual idealism. As Dickens puts it at the end of his book, Niebuhr addressed the realities of human affairs and demonstrated that until we consider certain Christian insights about human nature, we can never understand the nature of power in history. Paul's epistle, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, for this week, takes me back 30 years to my seminary days in a philosophy class in which our professor required us to memorize this long passage. The assignment was a clever pastoral reminder. While we read Plato, Aristotle, and Kant, the Apostle Paul reminded us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. We should never disparage human reason. My professor would have been the first to affirm the legitimacy, the enjoyment, and especially the Christian obligation to study the intellectual riches of the world, whether in artificial intelligence in architecture law and literature, or engineering and economics. He himself had completed two PhDs by the age of 35. He rightly warned us of the horrible damage done when anti-intellectualism isolated and insulated the church from culture. Simply put, human reason is a divine gift. Paul, for example, engaged the cultural elite of his day in Athens' marketplace of ideas. Once some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who had ridiculed him as a babbler of strange ideas brought him to the famous Areopagus. There we read in Acts 17 how Paul joined those who spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so we can say that truth is truth whether sacred or secular, and wherever it's found, in science, poetry, film, or in any other human endeavor. Gold from Egypt, or the Areopagus, is still gold, observed St. Augustine. <clears throat> but Augustine also observed that however much human reason is a divine gift, revelation is a divine necessity. Antigone by Sophocles provokes us to consider civil disobedience. A Mozart opera touches the depths of human emotion. Photos from the Hubble telescope fill us with cosmic awe at the power of science and the scope of the universe. But however beautiful and true are the fruits of human intelligence and reason, and after we've embraced all that is good and noble in them, there's still a grand narrative that transcends, transforms, and even subverts it all. It's a story with a capital S that's different in kind and not just degree. Paul says that knowledge is a form of power that stratifies humanity into social meritocracies and into religious hierarchies. The the Corinthians confessed their faith in a crucified Christ, a story of divine weakness, foolishness, and poverty. But they had transformed it into an occasion for boasting about power, wisdom, wealth, and influence. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And in the ultimate attempt at one-upmanship, I follow Christ. And so the Corinthian church had fragmented over boasting about various claims of human superiority. Paul sharply repudiated all forms of social meritocracy and religious hierarchy. The story of a crucified Christ as the power and wisdom of God which story was so repulsive to Jews and ridiculous to Greeks, deconstructs our every lust for power. To make his point, Paul draws upon the personal experiences of both both the Corinthians who received the gospel and also the apostles who preached the gospel to them. In an interesting social snapshot of the early church, Paul reminds the Corinthians, (coughs) Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. People of power and influence rightly understand that the gospel is a threat to all that they care about. Back in Acts 17, the sophisticated Athenians sneered at his message. The downward mobility of Christians was one of the main targets of their critics. Celsus, from the late 2nd century, combined socioeconomic snobbery with intellectual sarcasm to deride Christians. He wrote, In some private homes we find people who work with wool and rags, In cobblers, that is, the least cultured and most ignorant kind. Before the head of the household they dare not utter a word, but as soon as they can take the children aside, or some women who are as ignorant as they are, they speak wonders. And similarly, in the Octavius of Minuncius Felix from about the same time, the pagan Cecilius derided Christians as, quote, utter boars and yokels, ungraced by any manners or culture. After reminding the Corinthians of their origins, Paul turned to describe his own apostolic experience in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 9 to 13. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You were honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world." In his little book, A Time to Keep Silence, The travel writer Patrick Fermer describes visiting four monasteries while looking for a quiet place to write. Firmer was immediately shocked at what he called the staggering difference between life inside the monastery and life outside in the world. The vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, stability, and community are the exact opposite of the world's infatuation with wealth, promiscuity, independence, freedom, and privacy. Fermer is candid about his experiences in the monasteries. After a period of intense loneliness, depression, and fitful nights, the hospitality of the monks and the rhythm of their liturgy made a profound impact on this self-described unbeliever. He admits that adapting to monastic life was hard and it raised many questions, but returning to the vulgarity of the world, he says, was, quote, ten times worse, all of which is a poignant reminder of the stark contrasts between the wisdom of the world and what Paul calls the word of the cross. For books this week, I review The Next Christians The Good News About the End of Christian America How a New Generation is Restoring the Faith. The author is Gabe Lyons. New York Doubleday, 2010, 230 pages. Back in 2007, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons published a book called Unchristian What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. The book, based upon a three year Barna study, documented how 16 to 29 year olds view Christians with hostility, resentment, and disdain. According to their study, here are the percentages of people outside the church who think that the following words describe present-day Christianity. Anti-homosexual, 91%. Judgmental, 87%. Hypocritical, 85%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Too-political, 75%. Out-of-touch-with-reality, 72%. Insensitive-to-others, 70%. And finally, boring, 68%. It would be hard to overestimate, wrote Kinnaman, how firmly people reject, and feel rejected by, Christians. Or think about it this way, he suggested. When you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who's an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay-hater, homophobic. I doubt you think of yourself in these terms, but that's what outsiders think of you. Gabe Lyons begins his new book, The Next Christians, by recalling how he viewed that Barna study with embarrassment, but also empathy. But that was then, and times have changed. He writes in his new book, I believe this moment is unlike any other time in history. And at the end of the book, the Christian movement is entering a time of transformation on a par with the Protestant Reformation. That's because in his view, Christian America, which he never carefully defines, has died. And a new narrative has taken its place. He says it's impossible to overstate this reality. That we now live in an age that is marked by three unprecedented cultural characteristics. We are, we are now pluralistic, postmodern, and post Christian. According to Lyons, Christians have interacted with culture in ways that are either separatist or cultural. But transcending these two ways are what he calls the new restorers. In the bulk of the book, Lyons, describe, Lyons describes this vanguard of believers by devoting one chapter to each of their six characteristics. These restorers are, number one, provoked, not offended. Two, creators, not critics. Three, called, not employed. Four, grounded, not distracted. Five, in community, not alone. And six, countercultural, not relevant. Lyons makes his case by lots of anecdotal storytelling, which I found to be one of the best parts about the book. I was predisposed to appreciate this book because I liked his last one. But I think it has a lot of problems. The bad old days of Christian America are by no means over. I suspect that if if Barna repeated the empirical study, the negative images of Christianity would remain high. As for the good news of a new narrative on an epic scale that rivals the Reformation, how could one ever know that? There's also a revealing and unstated presumption in Lyon's perspective. The book really describes white Protestant evangelicals in America. This ignores dozens of other groups around the world and presumes that no one, or at least very few Christians, have embodied the six characteristics of the so-called restorers. (coughs) The simple bibliography reveals a narrow purview. Nevertheless, in the end, Lyons is well placed to discern at least some changes among some believers. And the ones he identifies in this book represent genuinely good news. The author is Gabe Lyons, the title of the book, The Next Christians. For film this week, we go to Germany, in a new film called Pina, from the year 2011. That's P-I-N-A. For many years, the German filmmaker Wim Wenders planned to make a documentary about Pina Bausch, 1940-2009. to 2009. She was a dancer, choreographer, teacher, and director, who since 1972 was famous for her direction of the Wuppertal Opera Ballet, which in fact was later renamed for her. When Bausch died suddenly of cancer only a few days before shooting of that film began, vendors turned the effort into a tribute to Bausch. The 3D film has no narration at all, and really no narrative. You don't learn anything at all, for example, about the basic facts of Bausch's life. She only appears in brief archival footage. Instead, Members of the dance company offer very brief cameos about how Bausch influenced them, (coughs) and then tributes of dance to honor her, some of which were her most famous pieces. Some of these modern dances are on stage, in the theater, but many others are in crazy locations, like on a subway, beside a swimming pool, next to an abandoned mine, in a river, or park, and so on. Dance, dance, the film ends with a quote by Pina, or else we're lost. From Germany, Pina. And finally, for this third Sunday in Lent, we've posted the covenant prayer of John Wesley. Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. The Covenant Prayer of John Wesley. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee, or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. let it be ratified in heaven. The Covenant Prayer of John Wesley. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, March 11th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.